0: To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com film FilmDaily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 6th. 2018 on today's episode we're going to gather around the digital water cooler and talk about what we've been up to this is slash film senior writer ben pearson and i am joined today by slash film managing editor jacob hall hello hello weekend editor brad omen hey that's me and writer why Bui.
1: hey everyone
0: All right, so uh, Peter and Chris are gone for this week. They're both out on vacation, so it's uh, it's just us holding it down, but we've been doing some stuff. So I'll start things off. Uh, I recently went to the Scum and Villainy Cantina here in Hollywood. It's on Hollywood Boulevard, and I I remember reading about this in, like, 2016, 2017, and it was basically, it started as this pop-up for, it's it's a Star Wars-themed bar uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, and um, people used to have to... You know reserve like timed entrance tickets online before they could show up there were like huge lines and it was sold out for the first two months of its entire run and i didn't realize it but they actually turned this into a permanent fixture on Hollywood Boulevard. So I was just walking through my neighborhood the other day and happened to see this place and was like, wait a second. So people can just walk in here now. You don't have to have a, like a, a special ticket or a, a, you know, pre-reservation online or anything like that. And they're like, yeah, you can just walk on in. So I I went in just for a couple minutes to check it out. And uh, the look of it is really cool. It's, it's basically modeled to look like the Moss Eisley Cantina. And there are even like um, sort of recesses in the wall uh, that are curved in the same way where it's, like, the booths that uh, that Han Solo and Greedo and all of them were in in the cantina. So it's a pretty cool place. And they have, like, a, a ton of different um, alcoholic beverages that are all, like, themed. Uh, there's, like, a, of course, they have blue milk, um, which is actually made of, like, rum and blue curacao and pineapple juice. And they have uh, drinks called Forest Moon Asteroid Field. Uh, the mind trick things like that i think uh, kevin smith actually created a drink there um and i know that like people like greg grunberg who played uh, snap wexley in the force awakens have have dropped by uh over time so i just thought it was kind of a, a cool place that i stuck my head in there i haven't i know they do like um They do karaoke and they do uh, geek trivia and stuff. So if you're in the Hollywood area and you enjoy Star Wars and haven't been to check this place out yet, it's definitely worth um, sticking your head in and and giving it a go. Um, I I didn't really spend enough time in there to get like a full – uh, a full opinion of the place, but it, I think I'll probably go back, especially because a lot of those drinks sound really, really great. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you guys, Brad, you probably, I know you're just in LA, but you didn't have a chance to visit this place, did you? Or do you, have you heard of this?
2: No, I, I've heard of it, but I'm actually really bummed that I didn't uh, know about it at, or remember it at the time to take advantage of it while I was in Los Angeles, because that sounds like it would be really fun to do
0: yeah it's right up your alley yeah i just i had no idea that it was a a permanent thing now so it's uh it's right there on hollywood boulevard for anybody who's uh interested so um let's uh let's go to you brad what have you been up to recently uh so i just have a little
2: thing that i was very excited to finally do last weekend um as we reported on slash from before uh funko released a special pop vinyl uh from jurassic park um, inspired by a certain iconic image from the movie featuring Ian Malcolm uh, after he's been injured in the T-Rex attack, laying out on a, a table um, with his shirt unbuttoned and his glistening, sweaty Jeff Goldblum chest. Um, but this was such a rave item for fans that when Tar- uh, Target released it, because it is a, a exclusive for, for that store, uh, they sold out immediately, and nobody could find them in stores anywhere or get them get a hold of them online. And I, I've seen so many people constantly uh, trying to at Reply Funko saying, when are these going to be in stock? When is there going to be more of these? And just by chance last week, I happened to look on target to see if there were any that might be online, you know, at randomly or in stores. And uh, it was good timing because although you can't buy it online and you can't even buy it to have it shipped to your store, they uh, actually had a listing of which stores had them in stock. And there was one that was about 40 minutes away from me that I could go pick it up if I wanted. And I even called ahead of time to make sure. I was like, I need to know that you have this in stock because I'm coming specifically for it. And sure enough, they did. And uh, they didn't even have it out on the floor or anything. They had them in the back. They wouldn't hold it for me in advance because they they know apparently that it's a hot item. Uh, So if you've been trying to get a hold of these and you're not willing to pay a little bit over price on eBay, I would go to Target's website and check to see your nearby stores, if they have any in stock and call them because they just might have them there. Uh, Cause I, I was able to get mine and now it's sitting proudly
0: on my shelf. That's very cool. Um, so Brad, you drove 40 minutes just for this thing. Did you need anything else in that area? Or are you just that hardcore that you're like, I'm doing it. I'm going <laughs> just for this.
2: No. Yeah. I mean, I've been wanting it since it came out. And so like I went just for that. I, um, I you know, I was, I, I actually did, make a a bit of a a twofer for it because um, where this Target is located is also where the closest Portillo's is located. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Portillo's is like this Midwest uh, chain known for their really good Italian beefs and Italian sausage. Um, Very good and very famous in the Midwest area here around Chicago, especially. And so uh, I asked my parents if they wanted me to pick up Portillo's while I was over there. So I got food out there after I went to Target and brought it back.
0: Nice. All right, Jacob, what have you been up to?
3: Well, my wife's been out of town, so I've been doing a lot of house cleaning, a lot of driving, a lot of trying to kill time, because how do you live as a solo bachelor anymore? (laughs) Um, But uh, it's actually been very exciting because the new episode of Hardcore History, a podcast by Dan Carlin, arrived. And Hardcore History is not a regular podcast. It arrives whenever it's ready, which is usually four to six months. And it's just my favorite podcast, hands down. Uh, Carlin's not a historian, but he's a former journalist, and he has a panache for the dramatic and for the cinematic and how he presents history. And he does months and months of research from all different types of sources, compiles them all into a podcast, that tends to relay history in a very uh, exciting, relevant, and accessible fashion. And the most recent one is the first part in the series. It's still like five hours long, so it could be like when it's done, it could be dozens of hours long where he's exploring uh, the mentality of Japan during World War II. And it, it's, it's fun because he opens in the 70s with the final Japanese soldiers surrendering from the island as they were still defending 30 years after World War II ended. And says asks the question, how does a society um, create soldiers who are willing to keep fighting for 30 years after war is over? And in order to answer that question, he flashes back to feudal Japan and works his way up you know, decade by decade, century by century, to explore how Japan went from being the scattered nation of um, uh, of samurai and the separate kingdoms to being this imperialist power to being Japan in the 70s. And if, if you are any in any way interested in history and not listening to this podcast, you need to get on it. It's absolutely thrilling stuff. And I, but I say this as someone who's a history fan, but I really do love it. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I found a podcast called The Lovecraft Geek, and I am... On the record as being a big hb lovecraft fan my probably my favorite writer even though he's incredibly problematic and i listened to several other uh, lovecraft and weird fiction podcasts uh, and lovecraft geek is the simplest of the bunch it's robert m price who is a theolo- theologian scholar uh and a weird fiction scholar which is a weird combination <laughs> literally sitting at a microphone answering questions people emailed him about weird fiction and about H.P. lovecraft and about old school horror stories It's literally a 60-something-year-old man answering questions on a microphone. Uh, And it's – but as somebody who has a bunch of Robert Price's books, he's edited so many story collections and is a genuine authority on this kind of stuff, I found it really, really exciting. And whereas most podcasts of this type are younger people kind of saying, like, let's talk about these stories and occasionally have a a guest host who knows what he's talking about, this is an actual legitimate expert in this kind of uh, literature. And if that interests you, it really is worth looking into.
0: Very cool. So that's Hardcore History and the Lovecraft Geek, two, uh, two new podcasts, to, for, for me anyway, to check out. I've never really tapped into either one of those uh, genres, but especially Hardcore History. That sounds really interesting to me. Um, so I, I'll, talk, I'll start off the what we've been reading section. Uh, I recently read Eric Larson's Thunderstruck, and Larson is the same author who wrote uh, The Devil in the White City. I don't know if, have any of you read that book by any chance? Nobody. Really? Oh, okay. Cool. I
3: read Devil in the White City. I've
0: okay. Read Devil okay. I've uh, not read and I read a few
3: other Eric Larson books as well. I've not read this one, so I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts because uh, Devil in the White City is one of the best books
0: I have ever read. Yeah. So that's the thing is I I've only read Devil in the White City from him, and then Thunderstruck, this other book is. Uh, so for those who don't know, Devil in the White City tells the story of the creation of uh, the Chicago World's Fair and there's also a serial killer that is like plaguing the city at the same time and it's this this sort of dual narrative that uh, that ultimately meets at the end and it's this really fascinating um, uh, sort of convergence of society and ideals and technology and all of this stuff and and then this this weird perversion of this serial killer who's just like rampaging through uh, the Chicago and you know in this this very specific time period and Larson is really great at all the little details like you know building up he does tons and tons of research it basically his books read as if they're the most well researched um, you know long form articles has <laughs> i mean i guess that's that's a dumb thing to say is like all books are, are well researched long form articles but it sort of has that feel it's very propulsive and the storytelling is always really great so thunderstruck is a book that came out uh, in 2006, and it's about uh, a, another murderer, and the the dual track this time is Marconi, the guy who created uh, wireless telegraphy. And it's all, again, sort of similar sort of themes like the rise of technology, and, and half of the book tracks Marconi and, and the way that he uh, has created this, you know, heretofore unknown form of communication and really how the world changes because of that, and then this other, this killer. But the thing is, this book is was profoundly disappointing to me because the narrative thrust is just not there. Like from in the devil in the white city, I think from, you know, the, in the first hundred pages, you really get a good sense of who these two uh, are, or the two storylines that are being told and like the murders start happening quickly right away. And you're really sort of sucked into the whole thing for comparison. I think this book Thunderstruck is only like 400 pages or somewhere around there. And you don't even really know that a murder has happened until like page 300 or something. So it's a, it's a long delay before you get to the quote unquote interesting stuff. Uh, And the, the cover is like, there's a quote from the LA times that says a ripping yarn of murder and invention. And like, yeah, that's technically true, but not until the very end of the book. So uh, I don't know. I, I was a little disappointed with it. The, the world building and all that stuff is is just as you know um, intricate as it was in *Devil in the White City*, and and he, you can tell he certainly did a ton of research. But in, in terms of like just being, uh, in terms of like sheer entertainment value, um, I did not get uh, nearly the same level out of *Thunderstruck*. So uh, read at your own peril, I guess. And if you're interested in Marconi and and wireless telegraphy, he goes into a lot of that. But I, I just wasn't as interested in that because it's something more almost like abstract in the way that it all works instead of, um, you know, the creation of how they basically like wiped out a section of Chicago and had to build this thing. It's so, like, and I don't know, it was easier for me to, to sort of picture these people, um, you know, doing these, these feats of design and creating the Ferris wheel and all of these crazy things, uh, instead of more, yeah, like more abstract stuff with uh, with wireless telegraphy. So anyway, that's Thunderstruck. You can check it out wherever books are sold if you're interested. Um, Jacob, what have you been reading?
3: Also, I'll jump in real quick to say that if you um, want more Eric Larson, uh, Ben, his other, another book he's written called uh, In the Garden of Beasts, about an American family living uh, in Nazi Germany, is uh, not quite as good as Devil in the White City, but it's very good. And, and it has that sort of um, immediacy I think you're looking for in, in this work.
0: Oh, that's good. okay. I was worried that like Devil in the White City might have been a a uh, a one and done kind of thing and and if all of his works were more along the lines of thunderstruck, then I probably wasn't going to dig into more of his stuff. but it's good that you have a a positive recommendation for some of his other things. so I, I it's one of those books that like or I guess that a style of book that you probably need to throw in a couple other things in the rotation before you just immediately jump into another one. but I may have to check that out in like a few months once i've gotten through some other fiction and things like that but uh but yeah what was that one called again
3: uh in the garden of beasts garden it was his, beasts. Okay. it was his follow-up to a uh, the white city i believe and i think it's because what kind of what you just said it's the story of a family watching uh fascism rise around them and the story of a city being changed while a serial killer stalks the streets those are our sort of immediate concepts that even though we can understand even in an abstract way. So even when he's diving into the history, like we're on board the entire way Whereas Thunderstruck sounds like it's a lot of stuff that's hard for us to parse from yeah. 2018.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Alright, so I just wrote that down. Thank you. In the Garden of Beasts. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading?
3: Uh, I've started reading a book I picked up at Comic-Con. It's now available uh, to everybody, though. It's a, a Go Team Venture, The Art and Making of the Venture Brothers. This is a show that I've been watching since it started airing in 2004, and I'll get to the show itself in a little bit because I've been revisiting it, but I'll talk about this book for a second because this book raises the bar for any any other art-making of books I've ever seen. It is incredibly thick. It is very large. It is um, It weighs a lot. It is essentially, it's essentially not quite a coffee table book, but it's close enough. And in addition to having art from the show's earliest creation, uh, it has art from every single episode, including sketches and concept art, and it has um, a Q&A interview that runs the entire expanse of the series between the creators and the author of the book. So you are getting information literally on every single episode of the show where the creators discuss every single episode, episode by episode, art piece by art piece. Uh, It is a daunting read. It is huge because this show has been on for six seasons now and seventh begins soon. But I've never seen a book that's more comprehensive. Uh, I've read so many art of books, so many making of books, but I've never seen one that combined them and made pretty much the essential tome, like you, there's nothing you can't learn from this book about the making of this show. It, it daunts everything else I've ever seen. It's it's only forty bucks. I mean, uh, Dark Horse um, tends to have really good fair prices for their um, for their hardcovers like this. Like they put out the Legend of Zelda Encyclopedia series recently. It was also all forty bucks each. But you're getting like an incredible product for forty dollars, and if you're a fan of the
0: show, this thing is the
3: absolute must buy.
0: That's uh, crazy. I've never even heard of like a a book that where every episode of a TV show is touched on in such a detailed way. That's that's nuts. That's like unprecedented. I think.
3: Yeah, and I and it's and it's it's so cool. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this is a show that has a tiny crew. I mean, two guys write, direct, and edit the whole show uh, and animate the whole show with a with small, tiny, tiny crew. So I think it's such a passion project that they're willing to put aside the time to do this, because if this was like a major, major show on a major network instead of, you know, airing late night on Adult Swim, uh, then I think maybe there would be more restrictions. But this feels like they have so much to say and they're ready to share it. Uh, but I've also been reading through my uh, unread comic book stack, uh, which is increasingly huge as I get sidetracked by work. But I, made a gi- I read about, uh, instead of talking about the issues I read while my wife's been out of town, I read about three feet worth of comics you <laughs> should <laughs> put it in perspective um, so real quickly uh, I want to throw out some uh, stuff I've been reading that I don't think I talk about on the show very often uh, or, or on the site very often uh, there's a series coming to an end soon after eight issues or maybe seven issues called uh, Maestros it's an image comic by Steve Scrocci and imagine a Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter-esque sweeping fantasy series with all the rules and detail you'd expect from a Tolkien or J.K. Rowling but with dick jokes that would make Seth Rogen blush. It is an incredibly strange thing. The basic gist is the god of the universe has a son who's half-human who lives in Florida, and when um, the god of the universe is assassinated, his half-human son must rise up and take his place, and despite his uh, wishes to make the universe a more fair and woke place, things go horribly wrong, and it is disgusting and filthy and hilarious, and all having a Really coherent mythology. that I found myself getting really sucked into. Uh, I'll recommend uh, Black Magic, which is a series uh, about a a witch solving crimes as a police officer. And it sounds like it should be lame, but it's not. Uh, Greg Rucka, the uh, writer, he has a history of writing uh, military figures and, and secret service agents and um, uh, people who have like this sort of um, this kind of background, and he lends the whole thing this sort of sense of weight and realism. So even though the elevator pitch of she's a witch who solves mysteries as a cop sounds like it could be really silly. It reads as a really good cop procedural that has magic in it. And the uh, art is absolutely gorgeous. It's drawn entirely in black and white with color used selectively. And I am looking up the artist's name right now because I am blanking on her name. I'm an idiot. Nicola Scott. Uh, She's uh, also drawn Wonder Woman before. Um, She drew a lot of DC stuff back in the day and it's just incredible work and I'm going on for a long time, so I'll go faster on these next <laughs> things I want to recommend. Um, Deadly Class, becoming a uh, sci-fi original series soon. Uh, pretty much, I uh, think Harry Potter, if Harry Potter was a school for assassins instead of wizards. Extremely dark and nihilistic, um, but really gripping stuff. And if the show is half as good as a comic, it's going to be worth watching. And uh, you know what's really good right now is a character you haven't heard of called Batman. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the current run of Batman, uh, it just uh, had a big, um, massive issue with uh Batman and Catwoman almost getting married, um, but even better than that is a current storyline where Bruce Wayne is pulling jury duty for a case where Batman caught Mister Freeze, and in the middle of the case, uh, Bruce Wayne realizes that Batman may have been incorrect in in, uh, in apprehending Mister Freeze for this for this crime, so Bruce Wayne has to. Um, convince the jury of his peers that Batman caught the wrong
0: man. It's actually a really, really cool arc, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. amazing. Wow, man, I would watch, I mean, talk about like, that sounds like a classic episode of Batman the Animated Series or something. That's that's such a cool premise for a Batman comic. Um, All right, so let's move on into what we've been watching. HT, uh, you've been checking out some movies, right?
1: Yes. So I got the um, pleasure of seeing Christopher Robin at a screening uh, earlier last week, and it was a screening that invited a bunch of families as well. So I was surrounded by many children who were running around for half of the film, but did not dampen my enjoyment of this film, which I liked a lot despite it having a sort of mixed reception from a lot of critics because it's a sort of more wistful, almost like melancholic take on... um, uh, the Winnie the Pooh franchise, kind of like the evolution of Winnie the Pooh uh, done in a sort of hook type structure in which Christopher Robin um, grows up and has to be reminded of his childhood through the return of his favorite um, characters from The Hundred Acre Wood. And it is basically like if Winnie the Pooh like stumbled into Terrence Malick's Tree of Life because it's filmed in this very dreamlike almost surreal manner and it's a little bit like tonally it's also kind of sad and a little all over the place too because there's a lot of uh more slapsticky moments towards the end but I really enjoyed it just because it gave me that sense that I had when I watched Winnie the Pooh as a kid of just like Uh, heartwarming uh, emotion and um, that sort of Taoist um, sort of philosophy that that Winnie the Pooh always kind of espouses Uh, I had I feel like Chris Robin really was true to that and wasn't like a lot of um, other live action Disney remakes which I've been very hit or miss for me because they've been so artificial and glossy and this one felt much more I guess kind of genuine or lived in, in a way. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I will defend it from people who were not happy with it. I like Christopher Robin. <laughs> yeah, I want to hug was him.
0: A, I, I saw this movie and I was one of those people that you're talking about. I, I just didn't, I, I don't know. I, I thought that the, um... And not to like completely offset everything that you were just saying, but like I feel <laughs> like it wasn't. Uh, I feel like it wasn't as dreamlike as it could have been. I just thought like the color palette being sapped the way that it was just really um like it, it took a lot of energy out of the movie because everything just looks so dull. And maybe that's part of the larger point that they were trying to make. I guess I could be generous and give them the benefit of the doubt there, but it, it just struck me as like uh, a very like unimaginative plot, but I will say that all of the characters from The Hundred Acre Wood, uh, you know, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger and Eeyore especially, um, are great. Like, I, I loved every moment that they were on screen. I just wish that the movie that they were in was a little bit better, but I'm, I'm glad it worked oh, yeah, for the you. Oh
1: uh, yeah, the plot was completely unoriginal, but I enjoyed it despite that, and I think that it really did what it was trying to do, and I think it was ambitious in a sense that, like, some other Disney live-action remakes are not quite so ambitious. So, yeah, that's great. Uh, uh, Christopher Robin, a good movie for some people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, what else have you been saw, watching? Uh, the only movie I saw was Eighth Grade, which is I know a month late. It's Bill Burnham's directorial debut, and it stars the wonderful Elsie Fisher, who is just amazing in her first role as this uh, really self-conscious uh, 13-year-old eighth grader who is trying to, uh, you know, establish herself and find herself uh, in the age of social media and the digital digital age and it was just it was really hard to watch because I felt like all the the um, embarrassment and the cringeworthiness from my own middle school years just rushing back as I watched this film and I think like half of the time I was watching it through like my my fingers just because I could not stomach what was going on it was a it really um was able to just recreate everything that you hated and remembered, but also kind of fondly remembered about middle school, the worst time of your life. Um, And uh, I'm just after watching it, I'm very happy that I never had to go to go through middle school, go through puberty with like social media. I like just miss that. And I'm very grateful because that would have just wrecked my self confidence. And it and amazed at kids who can go through it these days because it seems like a huge, just, journey. Yeah, and
0: Brad, you saw this at Sundance. You were a big fan of this one too, right?
2: Yeah, this movie is so good. Um, I've been dying to see it again since I saw it at Sundance now that it's finally expanding. Uh, I'm hoping to go see it. My mom actually just recently said something to me about how she saw an interview with uh, Bo Burnham and Elsie uh, Fisher on the Today Show, and it really like um, got her wanting to go see the movie. So hopefully I'll go see it with her at some point. And actually, since this just came up while we were recording, um, A24 just announced that they're going to be hosting free screenings of 8th Grade on August 8th in all 50 states at select locations around the United States. So if you haven't seen it yet and you want to catch a free screening – uh go online uh check out we'll we'll have a link to where you can get all the locations for the screenings uh to find out when you and where you can go see it and the cool thing about it is uh this film is unnecessarily rated r because of language and whatnot but there are a bunch of people um even those like who are from parent groups and stuff like that uh who are usually cautious against you know content uh that is meant for more adult mature people say that this is something that, like, teenagers need to experience and, like, see for themselves. And so because of that, uh, A24 is making it so that the theaters that are hosting these screenings will not be adhering to the R rating rules that they normally are so that anybody, uh, you know, as basically as if you've experienced eighth grade, then you are old enough to go see eighth grade. So if you are one, near
0: one of those screenings, you should definitely go check it out. Awesome. HT, uh, you've been watching something else too, right?
1: Oh yes, Um, uh, the new episodes of Terrace House opening new doors have dropped on Netflix and I've uh, raved about Terrace House before so I won't get get too into it but uh, eight new episodes were released just this weekend. Uh, oh july thirty first actually and um, i I of course watched all of them in like the first day and now i'm I'm really sad and waiting for the next part to drop and It's the Japanese reality show uh, that is uh, being filmed right now in karizawa uh, Japan, and it has a really sort of lovely rural uh, reality to it and um, the the romance between the model and the hockey player that I was gunning for before. Oh, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it. It's, it's going <laughs> well, though. It's have, have hope for she for Shion and Subasa, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I I really ha- hope that the next few episodes will drop soon. It probably won't be till October, but I can't recommend Terrace House enough. It's a great reality show that re- that is a sort of I think I called it a balm to the soul before, and it still is that even though the drama got up this this um, time around, it is um. The antithesis to most US reality shows we have now. It's just a good, uh, kind hearted uh, reality series.
0: Cool. So that's Terrace House. Uh, so let's move on into, I guess, what I've been watching. Uh, I, so on. June 29th, Matt Zoller-Seitz, who is a, a very well-regarded uh, film critic, he works for RogerEbert.com and Vulture and a bunch of other places, he tweeted, The best American film from the early 90s that most people haven't seen is Bill Duke's Deep Cover. It also features some of Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum, and Clarence Williams Thirds very best acting. I had never heard of this movie before, and I was like, early 90s, Lawrence Fishburne Jeff Goldblum, yeah, I'm totally in, I'm checking this out. So I added it to my Netflix DVD queue, and it finally arrived uh, last week, and I had a chance to check this movie out, and, I mean, for Matt Zoller sites to call this one of the best American movies from the early 90s that people haven't seen is uh, is very, very high praise, I think. And I did not think that it lived up to that, that standard at all. I thought that uh, that Fishburne and Goldblum, uh, you know, they're basically the leads of the movie. It, it's about uh, Fishburne plays a, an undercover cop who, you know, as the, the title Deep Cover indicates, goes very, very deep undercover. And he teams up with Jeff Goldblum, who's sort of this drug dealing scumbag. And they basically try to take over the 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 los angeles drug scene in like 1992 or whatever and you know being you know living in la and seeing uh, all those shots of the city at that time has its charms and i think Fishburne and goldblum are they they are pretty good in this movie for at least for the first 90 percent of it and, and it, you can tell that they're movie stars and they they are just you know Exuding all of this chemistry and, and movie star quality, even in that relatively early, you know, time in their careers, I think uh, Fishburne was actually credited as Larry Fishburne. Still, that's how early this was in his career, um, and I just. I, I, despite the fact that those guys are pretty good in this movie, I just found the whole the, the rest of the movie around them, sort of like Christopher Robin, to just not be that that uh engaging. So um it's it's very stylish, it's very of the time, it's like you know straight out of the early '90s in terms of like all of the stylistic choices and the you know the production design and the costumes and everything. It's like very 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 '90s. Uh, but I don't know, I I just um I I was a little let down by that uh, recommendation and I just uh, <laughs> I don't know I figured it was worth talking about because I had never even heard of this movie before but I'm I'm always a sucker for um, you know cop stories and in, in particular and also just like you know, uh, you know, finding hidden gems and discovering things that I'd never seen. So I I wanted to give it a shot, but it just did did not do anything for me at all. So uh, that's Deep Cover. And then also really quickly, I started Orange is the New Black Season 6. I might be the only person on this podcast who watches that show. Anybody can jump in and correct me if that's incorrect. But um, uh, I'm only, I think, three episodes into the new season. So I'll probably talk about it again once I finish it. But I... I've seen the tide begin to turn a little bit online, or at least that's my sense uh, in terms of like the reaction to Orange is the New Black. And f- you know people seem to think that it's a show of diminishing returns, and I guess I can see that. But for me, this show is still entertaining. It still has really, really fantastic uh, dynamic characters that I care a lot about. And I still think it's better than a lot of stuff on, you know, on traditional TV, and and a lot better than a lot of Netflix's original shows. So, I mean, the show is is in its sixth season right now, and uh, it takes a lot for a, a show to remain uh, at a certain level of quality for six seasons in a row. So, and I think I think Orange is the New Black is still pretty high up there. So, uh, I'll I'll return with a, a final analysis, I guess, once I'm done with the sixth season, but. Just wanted to sort of throw that out there as more of like a PSA than anything. That the show, uh, the sixth season is available now. I think it came out on on Netflix like a, a week or two ago. So uh, you can check that out there. Uh, Jacob, I know you mentioned Venture Brothers earlier. Uh, how, how have you been? Uh, <laughs> how's your rewatch been going of that?
3: Uh, yeah, I've discovered that the entire uh, series is available on Hulu right now. So uh, even though I own the Blu-rays, I decided to check that out. And so far, it it's been an interesting rewatch because I would easily call Venture Brothers in my top ten shows of all time. No no show has um better captured my interests while well, at the same time. But the rewatch has exposed how the show has grown and its shortcomings at the same time. For those of you who don't know, The Venture Brothers is an adult swim cartoon network show uh, created by uh, Jackson Public, aka Christopher McCullough, who was a writer on the tick back in the day. And it started off as a parody of Johnny Quest and like pulp fiction stories and superhero comics. And over the years, the parody started to uh, give way to an actual universe full of actual characters we care about. So characters who started off as being like a parody of this famous superhero, a parody of this famous pop action hero, sort of took on their, a life of their own. And the world of that, that they all inhabit, which started off as being a platform for jokes we can, where they can make fun of Johnny Quest, end up becoming absolutely fascinating and full of layers and detail that, like, I get obsessed with. And the show is so funny it, it fluctuates between the highest of high humor to the lowest of low humor pop culture references actual pathos it will combine uh really obscure jokes about 80s music with dick jokes at the same time in ways that like blow my mind it is um there's nothing else like it and you can tell that the creators are really putting their souls into it this is the stuff that they love stuff that fascinates them and they're taking all this pop culture that they've absorbed over their entire lives and feeding it through their own personal neuroses, their own humiliations. And like the this, this show at its core is about a former child adventurer who's grown up to be a super scientist and a failed one at that, who uh, is running out of money, who's uh, two kids, aka the Venture Brothers, the two title characters, are total failures. And the show explores um, what it's like to be uh, middle-aged and sad in a world where you once used to fight pterodactyls with your explorer father. <laughs> and... Like, give you an idea of the, of the kind of joys this show has. Like, there's a Doctor Strange stand-in named Doctor Orpheus who is so poor that he has to rent, uh, rent a room on Doctor Venture's compound. And he's a middle-aged guy with no friends who's struggling to raise his uh, teenage daughter who doesn't get him. And just, but at the same time, he's a totally plausible Doctor Strange character. When he goes off and does magic and gets in a fight, sees this really exciting, fun superhero character, but then he goes home and he's sad. <laughs> that's the appeal of the venture brothers but um i, I also realized that the show is very much a product of its time in some ways that it, it, since the show is such a small crew it takes two to three years to make a season uh so you'll see the show like take leaps and bounds like between seasons where the animation like improves significantly between seasons the storytelling gets better the writing gets better and early seasons are still very crudely animated and they're full of um gay panic jokes and um uh, retard and gay are the most common punchlines in the, in some of the early seasons. So, it's, so I find myself like cringing because I've never seen a show so imaginative and uh, so in love with its characters, and yet so out of tune with what we are as a society. You know, only 14 years later after it debuted, so it's one of those shows where I recommend it wholeheartedly. Uh, but it's definitely grown up, and it's definitely exposed that um the jokes we made 14 years ago are not the jokes that are okay now um which is which is relevant considering (laughs) some things we talked about recently on this podcast yes um yeah it's still one of the best shows ever made and a a brilliant masterpiece of pop culture pastiche and satire uh but i definitely if you're a person who wants who cannot watch a show um and like kind of maybe space out amongst the jokes you have an age will you know just don't watch it but if you can it's all on hulu and the new right. season new season just kicked off, by the way, which is why I'm catching up.
0: Season 7 premiered last night. Cool. So that's the Venture Brothers. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching?
2: I've been uh, getting a little sappy and romantic over here. Um, last week, I took the time well after much of people in the film Twitter circle uh, decided to sit down and watch this. But I finally got around to watch the romantic comedy Set It Up, which is a Netflix original uh, starring Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell. It's definitely uh, a throwback to the kind of romantic comedies we used to see in the you know mid to late 90s and early 2000s. You know, it's got some vibes of uh, like The Devil Wears Prada and, and and You've Got Mail and things like that. Um, and it really is charming. I I don't think I'm quite in love with it or head over heels as some of the people were in our you know, uh, film Twitter circle, but it was definitely enjoyable. Glenn Powell especially is extremely charming and I'm really excited to see what he is going to be doing in Top Gun 2 since he was recently cast, uh, in a role. And I feel like he needs to be doing a lot more cause he was, he was great in that movie and he just has charisma for days. Uh, and Zoe Deutsch is particularly good too. She has a little bit of, uh, kind of an Ellen Page quirkiness to her, to her. Um, and she's a little bit more, I don't know, I guess, uh, lighter i guess you could say because ellen page can be a little bit kind of darker when it comes to her quirkiness um but yeah I, for the most part i enjoyed it it's it's uh, fun it's one of netflix's uh better original offerings for sure
0: uh so if you haven't seen that yet I, i'd give it a shot cool yeah i think uh ht and i both uh have checked that one out jacob have you had a chance to see that yet set it up uh no i
3: have not but i, I guarantee you my wife will watch it and i'll watch it with her within the next few weeks
0: cool uh brad what else have you been watching
2: yeah, so, and then I also watched, uh, just recently, uh, P.S. I Love You became available on Netflix, and uh, since my girlfriend in Utah is, we, it's a long-distance thing right now, really the only thing that we can, like, do together besides talk and FaceTime is to, like, watch movies at the same time and then talk about them afterwards. And, and we, you know, uh, message back and forth while we're watching it as well as if we were, you know, talking and in the same room. And so we decided to watch this because I hadn't seen it yet, and she did, and she really liked it. And it's um, a real depressing movie. (laughs) Um, The the opening scene, you know, with Gerard Butler and Hilary Swank, like setting up their romance and relationship, is really well done and uh, charming, and like they have great chemistry together. And then the rest of the movie, it's just kind of depressing and almost a little bit awkward. And I found myself thinking about how this the premise for this movie hasn't been turned into a TV series yet, because I feel like it lends itself to a more uh, serialized storytelling model. Um, for those of you who don't know, it, it, the story is uh, Hillary Swank and Gerard Butler are this couple who are married, um, and Gerard Butler dies early in the movie. That's like the exciting inside incident, but he has left behind a series of letters that keep showing up throughout the uh, the year following his death. That like kind of help her grieve and work through some stuff, and uh, you know do things with her friends and all this kind of stuff, and. I felt like I wanted more time with Hillary Swank's character to like work through the grieving process and like, you know, just maybe be a little bit more, uh, taking more time to like get back to her friends and get back to her life. And I, I felt like seeing like an episodic version of the story would have been a little bit more satisfying. Cause otherwise it felt kind of, even as a two hour movie, it felt like it went by pretty quick and didn't get enough time really to dig into, you know, that process so much. Um, but it's uh, it's definitely a tearjerker. It's I don't think it was I wasn't blown away by it, but I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, and I think yeah, someone needs to turn that into a TV series ASAP.
0: All right, so that's PS I love you. That is also on Netflix. Uh, let's move into what we've been eating really quickly. Jacob, what have you been checking out?
3: Uh, I eat a lot of food that's bad for me. Uh, I don't have <laughs> I have a great diet. I like my junk food, but when I go out to eat, I tend to avoid fast food. I tend to sick toward the place where I can sit down and eat terrible food for me as opposed to go through a drive through But recently I was in a hurry and I went to Sonic and I did not know that Sonic has um, French toast sticks. And I'm going to flashback for you for a second to my childhood. A uh, childhood defined by going to the freezer, it'll be up a giant bag of French toast sticks and pouring them onto a, onto an, uh, a tray and putting them in the oven and eating these disgusting, amazing, delicious, awful, terrible, wonderful <laughs> French toast sticks. Uh, if you feed me today uh, proper French toast made by an actual chef with fresh fruit, I will turn up my nose at you, good sir. But knowing that there's old, disgusting, gross, amazing, delicious French toast sticks at, at Sonic makes me realize I'm going to Sonic again in the near future, and I feel really bad about it.
0: But here we are. Oh, Jacob. <laughs> Oh, that's that really makes me sad as somebody who likes the the really nice French toast with fresh fruit on it. That that (laughs) entire thing just makes me really sad. Um, Brad, let's go to you. I, I, I somehow Brad week after week, you always have ridiculous things to talk about in this section. And this week is no different. What have you been eating? I mean, they just keep releasing crazy things, and I'm always down to try most of them.
2: Um, there's a new Oreo uh, that has finally hit shelves that I found this week., uh, it's called Rocky Road Trip. Um, they've taken the traditional chocolate Oreo cookie and they've put um, like marshmallow bits in the cookie. and then the the cream actually is like basically the Rocky Road um, cream. And they put, uh, I believe it's soy nut supplements or something, whatever, in it to add, like, the, cr- the actual Rocky Road crunch to the cream itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a little bit weird because, like, Rocky Road is a flavor, like, I feel like works in ice cream because it has the ice cream. But Rocky Road, in this context, just feels kind of strange. It just feels like a slightly crunchier Oreo cookie with, you know, the bits of, of nuts in the the chocolate cream. So... I, I don't dislike them, but they're not one of my more, I don't know, favorite new Oreo flavors. Uh, okay. definitely, they're definitely worth trying, I suppose.
0: I mean, um, I would just stick to the classics. But yeah, it sounds like if you're more adventurous, that might be uh, might be up your alley. Listen, sticking to the classics when it comes to Oreos, it only gets you so far. <laughs> yeah, it gets you to the finish line in glory. That's where it gets you. <laughs>
2: yeah but you know sometimes you got to take a different path in order to make it to a more more satisfying finish
0: line ben (laughs) all right all right uh what other ridiculous foods have you been eating brad
2: uh so lay's potato chips uh just recently came out with their um what is called their taste of america like flavor things and they came out with a bunch of new flavors that they're uh, that are being rolled out slowly in stores i think they're all supposed to be out now but like Some stores haven't put them all out yet because like it's a lot of chips for them to just put on the shelf and they already have a bunch of chips to sell. But I did find um, the deep dish pizza Lay's potato chips um, at my local Kroger's Um, and it's specifically supposed to be Giordano's deep dish pizza, which is pretty good, even though I don't think it's as good as um, Gino's East uh or or even um almanati's or Almanatos. i forget how you pronounce that anyway but or, sorry luminati's <laughs> um <laughs> but uh yeah so it's uh they're pretty good they're i've never actually enjoyed pizza flavored things for the most part like i don't really like pizza pringles or uh the pizza combos but this specifically is pretty good whatever seasoning they're using to like represent deep dish pizza on these chips actually works pretty well it doesn't have the like artificial tomato taste. It just tastes more like what the spice of, like, you know, uh, the flavor
0: of cheese and sauce and crust combined actually tastes like on pizza. So, so Brad, let me ask you this. I, I may regret even asking this question, but can you taste a difference? Can you taste the deep dish part of it in the seasoning or <laughs> does it just taste like like normal pizza?
2: No, it just it's a different pizza flavor. And like, I think it's better because the sauce flavor isn't as overpowering. I think that's what I've disliked most about other pizza flavored things is that, it tastes too much like an artificial pizza sauce flavor. And this just, this feels like it has a mix of like what the cheese flavor is along with the tomato sauce. Um, And so, yeah, you can't, there's no clear, like if you were to give me a pizza chip and like this deep dish pizza chip, I'd be like, oh, well this is just a regular thin crust pizza chip, but this is a deep dish one. Um, So no, I'm not that quite an expert, but there there are there are a bunch of other flavors that are out. There's some that I want to try, and some that sound disgusting. Like there's one, the one that sounds really good is there's a chili con queso one that's coming out. Uh, there's a Cajun spice one. Um, There's fried pickles with ranch, but then like there's gross ones like crab spice and lobster roll, which I don't want chips that taste like that. <laughs> no,
0: thank you. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, but yeah, so there's there's um i think there's like a dozen flavors and they even brought back some of the old ones that like they uh have released in previous years like um there's a uh truffle, truffle um parmesan truffle oil something like that i don't know but, some, but there's like a few other flavors there so if you're if you're into chips you know keep an eye on the chip aisle for all the different lays flavors
0: all right uh, let's move into our last section of this episode which is what we've been playing jacob what have you been playing recently
3: Well, I recently got the uh, board game Rising Sun to the table. This is a a game published by Simon, designed by Eric Lang, who is one of the uh, big names in board game design right now. And the game is essentially a game of war and diplomacy set in a fantastical feudal Japan, where everybody's fighting over land and territory, as you do in many uh, board games. Uh, But your armies are assisted by... Uh, demons and monsters taken from Japanese mythology, so it has this really cool flavor to it that I haven't seen before in a lot of war games. And what's unique about it is that it's not just a game of like, when people think of war games, they think of Risk, which is, you know, move your troops to another area, roll some dice, if it's higher dice, wins. Um, Rising Sun has no dice, and it it follows the more recent tradition of war games that um, do not require any luck whatsoever. uh, This is a game of negotiation, diplomacy, making deals, and when you do fight, You fight by bidding with resources behind a screen. So you choose how much you want to commit to a fight, uh, how much you want to spend more or less. So it ends up being this really tense showdown where you know very well that uh, you may have another fight around the corner. So do you want to save your money and lose this fight now or or, or bet it all now? So it ends up being this thing, this game of personalities where you try to read the table. Hmm. And... It's a beautiful game. It's, it's an expensive game. It's a hundred dollar game, and it's because Simon makes beautiful products. Uh, giant board, uh, sculpts for all your soldiers and for all your, the uh, monster allies that are very large and detailed, and none of them look, well, like various different sculpts. Like all you, all your troops all have different sculpts, so you, they all look different from one another. It's that kind of thing where a board game is an aesthetic object, where it's like in addition to having a good game design, do you like looking at it? And the answer for this one is yes. I like having it on my table. I like seeing it. Um, But speaking of uh, tabletop games, I've been reading through the manual for a brand new game called Scum and Villainy. uh, No relation to the uh, place that Ben visited at the top of this (laughs) podcast. And uh, last year uh, on the site, and I believe on the podcast, I talked about a game called Blades in the Dark, a fantasy uh, RPG that has my favorite game system of all time. My favorite um, role-playing game system of all time. And the system uh, is now being um, used by other games in the same way uh, that like other popular game systems and engines can be licensed and given a new set of skin and new uh, details to um, appeal to new players who like different genres. Scum and Villainy is a hack, so to speak, on uh, Blades in the Dark. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's called the uh, From the Dark Engine or something, is what they're calling it now? But um, it's, a, it's a sci-fi uh, theme, whereas the previous one was fantasy. And, What I like about the system, as I've said in the past, is that it's incredibly cinematic. It encourages escalation of things going wrong. So if you like your D&D games where you can march into a fight with an orc and roll your dice and say, I hit him really hard and I win the fight, that's great. There's a place for that. But um, these games, uh, both Blades in the Dark and Scum and Villainy, are about walking into a situation, seeing it go horribly wrong, and then forcing you to scramble about and correct it. Uh, So you walk into a room, Let's say you do kill a guy. Maybe you make too much noise to uh, you attract more enemies. You, um, uh, your gun misfires. He turns around and he's your long lost brother. And it, it seems silly, but the game's engine is designed to escalate as opposed to um, make you feel powerful. It's designed to uh, reward you for playing your character, reward you for telling the story. Like you don't get, you don't level up and get and get points for killing things. You don't you get nothing for that you only level up and get new abilities if you play your character and make decisions from your character's point of view even if, even if they're the wrong decisions it make things worse for your character hmm. so it's a really really uh, special unique
0: game awesome yeah it sounds really fun uh ht i think you're gonna close it out for us what have you been playing recently
1: yeah, so if you guys remember, back in April, I was very excited to start playing the Harry Potter mobile game, Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery. Um, and like a lot of users, I was immediately met with a few frustrations because of the microtransactions, and even though it was a choose-your-own-adventure kind of game, um, you were basically set on the same storyline as everyone else. But, uh, how many months later is it? What, what month is it? Is it four months later? <laughs> I think it's,
0: yeah, four months later, yeah.
1: Four months later, I'm still playing it, and I've actually played it so much that I've caught up to where the updates for this game end, and um, there's no more story left to play until the um, Jam City releases another update, and so I'm basically stuck right now just grinding classes and um, trying to grind friendships. Right now, I'm trying to uh, woo Charlie Weasley to become my best friend, potentially a date later on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, so what what have you thought about like the way that the game has evolved or, or at least the the way that the gameplay or, or your characters have evolved since the beginning i know you said you felt a little locked in in the beginning by the time the you got to the end of the game or at least the point that you're at now uh has it felt like it's opened up a little bit more
1: Um, it's kind of like I've just become used to the way that the gameplay is. And it has opened up more because there are more features like the friendship leveling up is a fun thing that you can do uh, by like leveling up friends and doing these sort of like little mini games. And there's uh, some dueling mini games they have as well. And ways secret ways like get energy, which is the prime way to level up and um, do classes in this game. So it's um, and the way that I've kind of Gotten used to playing with this gameplay is that it's good to sort of play for like 10 minutes at a time and then put it away. So it's uh I don't want to. Yeah, I, I think I admitted this last time. I do sometimes play when I'm working, and if I'm like trying, <laughs> I'm trying to take a break from work a little bit, I just go on my phone for like five minutes, play it, and then I'm back to work. And it's a good way to actually keep myself from being distracted because this way I don't actually just like go on the internet and like watch just like browse on Twitter for an hour instead I just play on this and I can't play anymore so then I go back to to work so it's actually kind of a perfect game for someone like me who needs like a little bit of distraction in in my work work day before I go back to work so and it's it is fun it's like the story is compelling enough to make me want to like find out where's my brother what happened to him and um yeah, I, I really enjoy it still. There's like, and they do like little fun sort of contests where you can get new um, outfits and customizations. So I'm still hooked. You still got me, Jam City.
0: Awesome. All right, so that's Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery. And yeah, it's uh, <laughs> HD is still going. I wonder if anybody else out there is too. You guys can maybe shoot us an email and let us know if you're still playing it, if you're, uh, if you're still <laughs> on the bandwagon. So before we wrap up today, let's go around the circle and tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you.
3: You can find me every single day at SlashFilm.com and on Twitter where I'm at the Jacob S. Hall. H
1: I'm every day at SlashFilm.com and I'm on Twitter at H.TranBui.
3: Brad.
2: You can find me at Ethan underscore Anderton on Twitter, always writing on SlashFilm. And check out my
0: podcast, Go Flix Yourself, on iTunes and some other podcasting platforms. And you can find me writing at SlashFilm as well. I am on Twitter at Ben Pears. And SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in your email in case we mention it on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really helps us out in terms of visibility. Tell your friends about the show, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.